Well, I thought we'd go back to Samuel talking about David. I always like talking about David. He's one of my favorite characters in the Bible. And so we all know, you know, it's quoted quite a bit. Uh, we'll hear that David was a man after God's own heart. And, you know, it used to be when I would hear that, I would look at myself and I'll think, man, I don't stand a chance. I mean, I look at my own heart, I'm thinking, how in the world could I ever, would God ever say, there's a man after my own heart? And what we need to remember was that David was not naturally a man after God's own heart. He, he really wasn't. Because God, like every man except the Lord Jesus Christ, had to do a work of grace in him. And then the other night, just yesterday, I had a, a prisoner come up to me and he's talking about Noah and how Noah was this righteous man. I said, you need to read what it says before that. So in Genesis 6, 9, it says, Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations, and Noah walked with God. That's what he quoted to me. I said, yeah, it says all that, but you need to read the verse before that because Noah wasn't born that way. Noah was living in this, the earth, what it's coming to now, in a totally wicked world. And the only thing that kept him from being judged, just like us, with the rest of the wicked world was what? It was the, the grace of God. Because it says, before it said Noah was a just and perfect man and walked with God, it says in Genesis 6, 8, that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. That's how he was able to do what he did and walk with God. It's the same with David. Like I said, he would have been destroyed, Noah would have, if it hadn't been for God's grace. And David, if you really read First and Second Samuel carefully, you'll see that he had many warts, a lot of warts. And God had to get rid of them. And the way he got rid of them was David went through a literal, spiritual, and physical ringer for God to get them out. And I'm telling you, with David, as godly as a man he was, it was not a pretty process. It wasn't always a pretty sight to see how he walked. So what, what does it mean to be a man after God's own heart? Does that mean everything is going to be hunky-dory all your life, you're always the one who fully obeying. I mean, we all know about David and Bathsheba, right? We know about that, but there was other things we're going to see tonight. So we're going to see tonight that, that God had to literally kick the feet out from David. He, he literally had to kick all of his props out so that David could learn the hard lesson of trusting God alone. And in learning that lesson, we'll see David failed miserably. <laughs> he had no visible friends. When he didn't have any visible friends or support, he wavered and didn't trust the Lord like you would think a man after God's own heart would. But by God's grace, by his grace, David learned that he should trust the Lord at all times and that he could trust the Lord at all times. But it wasn't something that came natural. So if you're someone out there saying, man, when I get in trials, it is really a struggle for me. Take courage tonight, because you'll see it, it's that way for all of us, if we're honest. Nobody naturally just trusts God in dire circumstances. So, we also see how even though he feared and failed, that the mercy of God came to him and restored him and got him back on his feet. So I was reading this story that this man wrote. It was a book called A, v a View from the Zoo by a man named Gary Richmond. And in light of all of what I just said, it was interesting. He described this guy, I guess he worked at a zoo. I don't know. I didn't read that much. But he just was describing the birth of a giraffe. 
So he's saying when a giraffe is birthed, you know, they stand pretty high up, that out comes the head, out comes the legs, and that giraffe does a 10-foot fall and lands on his back. And so eventually, within a few seconds, he'll flip over, and he's got his legs up underneath him, but he's sitting upright, and he's trying to shake off all the birth stuff and all that. And the mom doesn't waste any time. She gets over, and she walks and stands on top of that baby giraffe that was just born with her four legs. And she looks down at him for a second, and she takes one of those legs and just gives it a whack, bam, and just knocks that giraffe, just goes spinning and tumbling or whatever. And she gets up from that. He gets back in that position. She does it again. And then she does it again. And she keeps it up. I mean, that sounds cruel, doesn't it? She keeps it up until that, that baby, and it gets tired, and she goes over, and she nudges that thing and says, we're not done yet. And she does it until that, that baby giraffe finally is able to stand up on its own two feet. You know what she does then? As soon as it stands up on its own two feet, she goes over and knocks it over immediately. You're like, why would she do that? She should have been happy. That is because she wants the baby giraffe to get right back up, and she wants it to remember how it did it. Because here's the deal. Those giraffes out in the wild, the hyenas, the lions, the wild dogs, they love baby giraffes. And the only protection that baby giraffe has is it can get up as quick as it can and get back with the pack. Because if it's laying down or it's not able to get back with the pack because it's standing on its own two feet, it will be devoured. So what sounds cruel is really love, isn't it? And so isn't that what God does with us a lot of times, like he did with David? He will knock the props out from under us, and we're flying around and thinking, what in the world's going on? And as soon as you start to get back up, he does it again. And you're like, what is this? It's God's way of training us. Because here's the pattern in the whole Bible. You know, he makes us his people, right? And what's the first thing he does all through the Bible when he calls a people out? Just think about the Exodus. He makes them his people. The first place they go is the wilderness. And that's true with all of his leaders, and it's true with his people, because that's going to be the time of testing. And through that testing, that is, that is how the maturity comes. So without what we don't like to talk about, our trials, and what does it say in the Bible? It is through much tribulation that we will enter the kingdom of God. God is not trying to see how hard he can make it on us. He is like the mother giraffe. He's doing it for our good. So if you would then turn to 1 Samuel 16, and we're going to go over to, uh, we're going to end up in 1 Samuel 21. But if you could turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel 16. So just while you're getting there to 1 Samuel 16, let me just highlight quickly what a story everyone we all know as far as the whole thing with Saul and David. But in 1 Samuel 11, Saul is anointed king, crowned king by Samuel, right? In 1 Samuel 13, Saul goes and he can't wait for Samuel to get there, so he sins and offers sacrifices at Gilgal, which was a sin. Only the priests were allowed to do that. And he gets confronted by Samuel on, why did you do that thing? Ah, the people were me. I couldn't wait. And he's like, well, because of that, God is going to, your kingdom will not endure. It's going to be taken away from you. And that's where he said it's going to be given to a man after God's own heart. So that's the first time we hear that. And then in 1 Samuel 15, we talked about this last time. That is when Saul is commanded to go and destroy the Amalekites. But he doesn't. He spares Agag, and he spares the best of the sheep and the flocks. 
And a result of that, Samuel tells him, he says, you, um, how would you like these words to come to you? How would Ben, how would you like to hear tonight after the job you did, you have been rejected as the song leader? Man, that'd be tough to take. It really would, wouldn't it? But that's what Saul, I mean, Saul's whole reign wasn't just totally didn't do anything good. But at that point, Samuel walks up to him and he tells him, he said, that one right there was not a good thing you did, Saul. And you're not willing even to admit it. But because of what you did, God has rejected you from being king. And that's the way it was. So that happened in 15. Now, we're in 16. And I want us to see this. <clears throat> Look in 1 Samuel 16, verses 13 to 14. So because of Saul, actually, I want to look at 1 Samuel 16, 1 first. So Samuel had been mourning the fact that uh, Saul is going to be taken down as king. And the Lord said, 1 Samuel 16, 1, the Lord said unto Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill thine horn with oil and go, and I will send thee to Jesse the Bethlehemite, Bethlehemite for I have provided me a king among his sons. So he goes, we know the story, he brings all the ones before him, and he's like, have you got any left? Well, yeah, there's David out there, but he, how would he be the one, right? And so they bring him before Samuel, and in verse 13 and 14 is what I want to read here, because here's what happened. This is a significant change. Verse 13, 1 Samuel 16, it says, Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him, David, in the midst, his brothers are all watching this happen, in the midst of his brethren, and it says, the Spirit of the Lord came. It's actually the word is rushed upon him. It, the Spirit rushed upon David from that day forward. So Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. But then look what it says in verse 14. But the Spirit of the Lord did what? It departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord troubled him. So that happens in chapter 16. So you would be thinking, man, David's just one step away from the, the, the uh, throne, right? Well, and then verse chapter 17, what do we have happen? We have the famous battle of David and Goliath, right? And what that is is when you look at that, that's a precursor of what is to come. Because you have David here is granting deliverance to Israel, right? And where is Saul? He's trembling in his tent. And why is that? Because that spirit, that is an anointed spirit to lead God's people. It had left Saul, and that's why David cries out in Psalm 51, take not thine Holy Spirit from me. Because without that, look what Saul's end was. I'm not teaching that tonight, but it was a bad end. So that spirit rushes upon David, and it said it stayed on him from that day forward. And we see the evidence of that in 1 Samuel 17 with David and Goliath. So they recognize there's something special about David here. And Saul says, all right, I want to make you commander of my men. But what happens is they start singing the song about Saul is thousands, but David his ten thousands. And that's not sitting real well with old King Saul after being rejected. And he becomes jealous, doesn't he, of David, of his success. And he tries to kill David eight different times in seven different ways. And... 1 Samuel 18 to 19. He tries the javelin, tries to get him in bed when he's sleeping, tries to set him up to get the Philistines foreskins for, to get his daughter's hand in marriage, and on and on. He tells Jonathan and them, I want you to kill him. Comes up with all these ways to kill him, and none of it is working for him, right? 
And so in 1 Samuel 20 then, what happens? David's realizing, man, I'm in trouble. This guy is after me, after Aton's. I think you would kind of maybe start thinking that a little bit. So him and, him and Jonathan work out a deal. Jonathan's going to let him know what's his father's intention, and they make a covenant, don't they? And then David has to flee for his life. So that brings us up to where I want to be. So if you can turn to 1 Samuel 21, that's what I want to read. 1 Samuel chapter 21. So David has fled after his meeting with Jonathan. He knows Saul is after him. And it says, 1 Samuel 21, 1, Then came David to Nob, to Ahimelech, the priest. And Ahimelech was afraid of the meeting of David and said unto him, Why are you alone and no man with thee? And David said unto Ahimelech the priest, The king has commanded me a business and has said unto me, Let no man know anything of the business whereabout I send thee, and what I have commanded thee, and I have appointed my servants to such and such a place. Now therefore, what is under thine hand? Give me five loaves of bread in mine hand, or what there is present. And the priest answered David and said, There is no common bread under my hand, but there is hallowed bread, if the young men have kept themselves at least from women. And David answered the priest and said unto him, Of a truth, women have been kept from us about these three days since I came out, and the vessels of the young men are holy, and the bread is in a manner common, yea, though it were sacrificed this day in the vessel. So the priest gave him hallowed bread, for there was no bread there but the showbread that was taken from before the Lord to put hot bread in the day when it was taken away. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord, and his name was Doag, an Edomite, the chiefest of the herdsmen that belonged to Saul. And David said to Ahimelech, Is there not here under thine hand spear or sword? For I have neither brought my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you slew in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If thou wilt take that, take it. For there is no other save that here. And David said, There is none like that. Give it me. And David arose and fled that day for fear of Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said unto him, Is not this David, the king of the land? Did they not sing one to another of him in dances, saying, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands? And David laid up these words in his heart. And was sore afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. And he changed his behavior before them and feigned himself mad in their hands and scrabbled on the doors of the gate and let his spittle fall down upon his beard. And then said Achish unto his servants, Lo, you see the man is mad. Wherefore then have you brought him to me? Have I have need of madmen? That you have brought this fellow to play the madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? And David, therefore, verse chapter 22, departed thence and escaped to the cave Agilom. And when his brethren and all his father's house heard it, they went down thither to him. And everyone that was in distress and everyone that was in debt and everyone that was discontented gathered themselves unto him. And he became a captain over them. And there were with him about 400 men. And David went thence to Mizpah of Moab. And he said unto the king of Moab, let my father and my mother, I pray thee, come forth and be with you till I know what God will do for me. And he brought them before the king of Moab, and they dwelt with him all the while that David was in the hold. And the prophet Gad said unto David, Abide not in the hold, depart, and get thee into the land of Judah. 
Then David departed and came into the forest of Hereth. So I think I want to stop there. I was going to read both chapters, but I think we'll stop there. So chapter 21, it begins with David his fleeing from Saul and going to a city named Nob. And what's been going on is he has barely been escaping from Saul, who we know, what we read in chapter 16, has an evil spirit. And I believe Saul was a type of the Antichrist, is really what he was. And David, though, what's happening coming into this chapter, David has begun losing his faith that God is going to put him on the throne, that he is the anointed king. So look, you're in chapter, let's say 21, look in 20, verse 3. Look what he says here. He's talking to Jonathan. 1 Samuel 23, And David swore over and said, Thy father certainly knoweth that I have found grace in thine eyes. And he saith, Let not Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord liveth, and as thy soul liveth, there is but a step between me and death. How, how can he be talking like that? How can there be just a step between him and death? How can death even be in his thinking that he might die? But he is concerned where he's, I got to get out of here. There's just a step. He's lose, starting to lose his faith in God's promise. And I think part of that is, I mean, you think, how can that be after Samuel has anointed him to be the next king? How could he be struggling this way? And I believe part of that is that David misread God's timing because he probably thought in killing Goliath and winning the praise of Saul and all the people, and then Saul brings him into his court, and he's able to marry the king's daughter. He probably figures, I am being established as the next in line, right? But then all of a sudden, for David... Everything begins to unravel and fall apart. So I've already said Saul tries to kill him eight times, and that is despite the blessing that's on David's life. And so what is the lesson that David has got to learn through all this that he hadn't learned yet? And that is he's having to learn, hey, I am going to have to wait for God's timing. As you put yourself in his shoes, if you'd been anointed king, had the anointing, killed Goliath, had all the praise of the people. You're going out there. You're the victorious one in all the battles. I mean, how much longer do I have to wait? And all of a sudden now, he's having to flee. He's going the opposite direction from being on that throne, isn't he? The way he's headed. But he's got to learn what we have to learn, and that is we have got to wait God's timing. The second thing is i got five things, five things, observations I want to make, and then I want to see two principles we get out of chapter 21 and the first part of chapter 22. And the second thing, observation I want to make is Saul is, or David is forced to leave all the security that he has known. So he has to flee from Saul. Look at what he's leaving. His family now, the protection of the government of Israel is no longer going to be there. He has to leave his sheep. Ask Paul if he'd like to leave all his cattle. Just turn around and walk away from him. So, you know, he has to leave his sheep. He has to leave all his friends, Jonathan. He has to leave his position as a commander in the Lord's army. I mean, he's having to leave everything he knows that is security for him. And here's what we tend to forget when you read about David. David wasn't always just 40 years old, was he? How old do you think he was at this point? Where God, like I say, he's taking his feet out from under him like that little draft. He's 20 years old. He's a young man. 
And look, when you're 55 and you look back on what you think you knew at 20, you realize, man, <laughs> no offense to anybody that's 20, but I'm just saying there is a lot of experience you got ahead of you if you're 20 years old or 15 or whatever, more than you really understand at this point. But that's the thing. He's got a lot of experience. There's a lot of maturity. And guess how long God's going to put him in this rigor for? He's anointed king. He's had success. And he's going to have his props kicked out for him from him for 10 long years. He's going to have to run from King Saul. 10 years without all the comforts that he's known. So what can we get from that? So maybe you're young and maybe you're old. And God has, at this point in your life, I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe he's someone here. He's taken away all the securities that you've known. And it may not be all of them. It could just be some important ones. You know, maybe your mate is gone. Maybe you're starting a new job. You're starting at a new school. Maybe it's just, for me, I remember back in the 90s, it was just stepping out in a new ministry. I'm out there in territory I didn't know anything about going into a prison. I didn't know or witnessing on the streets. I didn't know anything about any of that. And that was... You know, a big deal for me. And how about us here as a church? I mean, we've just lost our pastor. We're kind of lost that security. We're kind of out here on new territory. And so whatever it might be, but I would say what we need to do, though, learn a lesson from David. We have to consider when we've lost our securities, whatever it is, God's trying to deal with us, that we're going to learn our lessons in the wilderness, that God's just trying to mature us and train us and grow us, not destroy us. I mean, isn't that what he told Israel when they went out into the wilderness in Exodus? It is. That's what he told them. So the third thing we see here is David flees to where? He goes to where when he flees? Where's the first place he thinks to go? Nob. You're like, Nob, what a name. I wouldn't name a city Nob. But apparently that's where the priest and the tabernacles are at. So he doesn't know where to go. He's like, I, I don't know where I'm going to flee. And Nob wasn't that far away. So he goes there, and he's always found probably comfort in the tabernacle, right? And he knows, hey, those priests that are there, and isn't this the way you should be able to think about ministers, is they are good and godly and just men. They're going to treat me fair. They're going to help me out. That's probably why he went there first. And the other thing, you know, I think more importantly than all of all is who else is there in the tabernacle? God's presence. So that's the first place he thinks to go. And look, when we get in trouble, isn't that the first place we should go? Is in prayer to the Lord, right? Go to him for our help. But listen to this. I think we sing this song, and it's Psalm 61, verses 1 to 4, in light of where David went. So it goes like this, Psalm 61, 1 to 4. Hear my cry, O God, attend unto my prayer. From the end of the earth will I cry unto thee. And when my heart is overwhelmed, and I'd say David's probably was, a young 20-year-old having to flee for his life. When my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For thou hast been a shelter for me and a strong tower from the enemy. And he says this in verse 4, I will abide in thy tabernacle forever. I will trust in the covert of thy wings. So I think that's why David's first thought is, I'm, I'm headed there. I think that's the safest place I can go is that tabernacle. But he comes, and we read verse, verse 1 there in chapter 21, David came to Nob to Ahimelech the priest. And what does it say? What's Ahimelech's reaction? He, he's afraid, because why? David's alone. He is not supposed to be alone. 
And he knows, hey, there is something up with this. I don't know what it is, but I'm not liking the smell of this. And so David's got a little fear in his heart. And I think that priest, high priest, could sense there is just something not right here with what's going on. And so he inquires of David, why are you here alone? You shouldn't be here alone, right? And David is what? He is afraid to tell the truth. And I'm telling you, he tells more than just one lie here. Because what does he tell him? He says, hey, I'm on the king's business. And he told me to go in haste and all that. And when he asked for that bread, he asked, well, where's the young men? And David tells him, oh, they're off somewhere. Well, he was by himself. There was no other young men with him. And when he makes all that stuff up about, oh, yeah, they've been kept from women and all that, there wasn't any young men. He's just telling one big whopping lie. So he's afraid either that priest, because if he knows that, because the priest, the knob is in Benjamin, and his allegiance is to the king. And if the king wants to inquire, the king is the one that has the, the right to inquire. So he knows all that. So he's an upright man, Ahimelech. But David doesn't know what's going to happen. So maybe he's afraid Ahimelech will turn him in. He won't help him. He doesn't know. So he makes up this lies on this urgent business. The servants are sent to an unknown place. So let me ask you this. Is it, and the law was already written, thou shalt not bear false witness. Well, let us ask us here. Is it ever justified to tell a lie? Now, we should know better here. When I said it at prison, I had about half of them saying, yeah. Now I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> I think we need to teach another message tonight. <laughs> Go back to the anatomy of a lie, what a lie is. So, you know, I would say no. I mean, we've been taught that here several times by Brother Hamilton through the years. It's never. And you say, even if someone's life's dependent on it, and that's where these guys are all like, oh, if someone's life dependent on it, I think you could lie. So you're hiding Jews in World War II? I mean, man, God supernaturally delivered Jews that were being hidden. They'd even say, ah, oh, they're upstairs, you know, whatever. They still wouldn't find them. So no, you don't have to lie. It's never justified. David was definitely wrong here. You know, they asked this young girl in a Sunday school class what a lie was, and her answer was, a lie is an abomination unto the Lord and an ever-present help in time of trouble. <laughs> Yeah, I thought that was pretty good. But hey, we all laugh at that. But I mean, honestly, if we think back through our Christian life, how many of us as Christians have lied? Even if it's just a little lie because of pride or we're afraid we're going to get in trouble. Honestly, how many of us have done that under pressure? And what we're seeing here with us whenever we've done that, whenever we've been guilty of that, and with David here, what does it demonstrate a lack of faith, doesn't it? That somehow God's not going to take care of that situation. But he will, won't he? <laughs> That's what happened to David. But listen, there's consequences to our lies, isn't there? There can be some grave consequences. So when you look here, we're in chapter 21. And we got a little premonition. Now, we didn't go on and read all of chapter 22. But look what it says here. The, the writer of Samuel gives you a little indication that there's trouble down the road when he says in verse 7, now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day detained before the Lord and his name was Doag. And he repeatedly calls him an Edomite when he talks about Doag in chapters 21 and 22. And he's letting you know, he, this, boy, this man is not a native Israelite. And there's actually a psalm written about Doag and his treacherousness because he is a liar. 
and he is a self-serving person. And David sees that, and he realizes, my lie has now gotten somebody in trouble. And it did, didn't it? So all of us that have read that, which should be most of it, we know what happens, that Saul is sitting around later on, and he's like, ah, nobody wants to help me out. My son won't tell me. He's making covenants. Nobody lets me know where David is and all, and Doag's listening to that. And Saul's like, well, David, how's he going to help you? Is he going to give you lands like I do and all that? And man, Doag's ears pierce up. Oh, man, lands are in this? If I help you out? He's like, hey, wait a minute. I'll tell you what I saw. Old Ahimelech, and he, and he tells a whopper. Oh, he got counsel for you, gave him a sword and all that. He's looking to, and so, so there's consequences. And nobody, and Saul says, all right. He calls the priest there and asks him what happened. The priests say, we don't know anything about it, which they didn't. Ahimelech. And so Saul tells his men, you go kill those priests. Well, those people, at least his men were godly enough or had enough sense to know, don't touch those priests. They haven't done a thing wrong. Old Doag, though, took care of all the priests right there on the spot, glad to do it. And not only that, he says, not only that, he went back and wiped out the entire city of Nob. And isn't it kind of funny that Saul wouldn't wipe out all the Amalekites, but he wipes out God's priest in their city? So there's consequences sometimes of lies, we're saying. And then look at verse 10. So where does David go, though? He, he has to flee. He flees from the priest, flees Nob. And where does he go next? In verse 10, it says, And David arose, because he knows about Doag knows he's there, and fled that day for fear of Saul. And where did he go? He went to Achish, the king of Gath. People, do we know where Gath is? Gath is where Goliath was from. <laughs> he goes to the city where Goliath lives. And I guess he thought, you know, hey, if I'm coming there and I'm telling you, you saw how good of a fighter I was, and I'm willing to fight for your armies and all that other, that they would just bring him in. I don't know what David was thinking. It doesn't really tell us, does it? Apparently Achish liked him, but his servants, they weren't fooled by this. They're like, what are you doing bringing this guy in here? Don't you remember the song they would sing? We had to hear that song day after day. You know, Saul's killing his thousands. David's is 10,000. He's singing about us. They're like, man, that's a little demoralizing trying to get him. And he's like, what are you bringing this guy in? And here's the thing. Saul, David, at this point, he is desperate, and he's living in fear, living in fear. So look. So he not only becomes afraid of Saul, verse 10, David arose and fled that day for fear of Saul. Look down in verse 12. After the servants in verse 11 say, don't you know who he is? Look what he says then in verse 12. And David hears what they're saying. He laid up these words in his heart. And here he is again. He was sore afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So I was reading this guy's book on this, and I thought he made a good point. He said... David shouldn't have feared, should he? Everyone will say, no, he shouldn't. Guess what? But he did. And think about us. Should we be afraid? We shouldn't fear either, should we? But we do, don't we? Because that's just part of being human. It's part of growing. We, we, aren't, we don't have perfect faith to begin with. And it, we get in trials that make us afraid, don't we? Here's the thing, God had given David, you, you know, we, we think about it from David's side, and it's like, man, what's wrong with him? He'd given him a clear promise of his kingship through Samuel. He'd anointed him with his spirit and defeated mighty Goliath. 
you think, man, how could he fear? Why should he fear? But the point is, he did, didn't he? Because why? His faith still needs growth, just like that giraffe we talked about. And his knowledge of what? His knowledge of God's ways have to increase, don't they? How God works, what God expects from him. And he also, I believe, he needs to be more secure in the love and care of his heavenly father. And it's the same for us. I mean, we have got the clear promises that we've heard talked about. We've all got the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Most of us here do, right? Baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I would say we hear testimonies every week, don't we? Year in and year out. I've been sitting there for 30 years, and I think Brother Hamilton did. We never, we always had testimony, didn't we? Always. So we have that whole thing of God's faithfulness in the past. But yet, we fear. And we shouldn't, but we do. And so what does that tell us when we get in situations like that? That we have, there's spiritual work that needs to be done in us, right? It doesn't mean God's done with us. But what's happened here in verse 13, his scheming has put David just right directly in the hands of the enemy. Look in verse 13. This is what he ends up having to do to get out of it. This is his desperate attempt to realize, man, I'm in trouble here. In verse 13, and he changed his behavior before them and feigned himself mad in their hands and scrabbled on the doors of the gate and let his spittle fall down upon his beard. So in doing that, we don't read, it doesn't sound like much faith there, does it? When we read that, it doesn't to me. But put something there in there was a psalm, there's several psalms that were written about this time, but turn over to uh, Psalm 56, if you would. We'll come back to Samuel here in a second. So this was written about this time, when he's in Achish. He's writing about that. In Psalm 56, it's, David says this, because he has got, everywhere he's turning, he's got Saul, he's got Achish, he's got Doag, he's got problems. And that's why he says, he's crying out, be merciful unto me, O God, for, for man would swallow me up. He fighting daily oppresses me. My enemies would daily swallow me up. For there be many that fight against me, O thou most high. But then look what he says in verse 3. At what time I am afraid, he learns something. What does he say he will do? I will trust in thee. Verse 4, in God I will praise his word. In God I have put my trust. I will not fear what flesh could do unto me. Every day they twist my words. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They gather themselves together. They hide themselves. They mark my steps when they wait for my soul. Shall they escape by iniquity? In thine anger cast down the people, O God. You tell my wanderings, put down my tears into thy bottle. He's a young man. He is, he is upset at night, I'm sure. Are they not in thy book? When I cry unto thee, then shall mine enemies turn back. And this I know, God is for me. In God I will praise his word. In the Lord will I praise his word. And see, I think he learned his lesson. He's writing this after this all happened. I think he learned a lesson and repented even. Because look what it says. He says, verse 11, In God have I put my trust. I will not be afraid what man can do unto me. And look in verse 12. Thy vows are upon me, O God. I believe he made a vow to the Lord. He wasn't going to do that again. I will render praises unto thee, for you have delivered. He's thankful. You have delivered my soul from death. Will you not deliver my feet from falling that I may walk before God? 
in the light of the living? I think he repented of all that and realized, hey, that fear of man has really gotten me in a bad way, and it's not right. And from here on, Lord, you, I will put my trust in you. So back to 1 Samuel 22. The last thing I see here in, that I want to point out in 1 Samuel 22, in verse 1, after he left Achish and Gath, it says in verse 20, chapter 22, one, David therefore departed thence and escaped to the cave Agilom. And when his brethren and all his father's house heard it, they went thither to him. He talks about everyone that was in distress. And then he goes, takes his family, his father and mother, down to Moab. His mom and dad down to Moab. Why would you think that would be? Why would he go there of all places to take his family to have them be secure? Well, there was somebody that was his great-grandmother. Do you know what her name was? Ruth. And what was Ruth? A Moabitess. So they got some relatives down there. And the king gladly takes them in. And what we need to see here is something to where God's hand is on this man's life. He, he is messed up. His family's coming, though, but he worked Years before, sovereignly worked years before to give his family a place of security by having Ruth be in the lineage and her relatives. So then he has a place then to take his family to be secure while all this running around is going on because Saul would have killed his family, would have done him in. And so what can we learn from that? How many times, how many people can give testimonies of they have a need, I mean a dire need, and they pray about it and you know, the mail doesn't travel that quick, especially now. But there's that letter in the mailbox with that money that was there, been there waiting for you. Or that was sent a week ago and it comes right when you pray. How, how many people can say they have testimonies like that in here? There's several. I've had that happen. I mean, that's just the way God works sometimes. And, and just he's, he's out for our good. So David's learned some hard lessons, but God's still sovereignly working in his life and in his family's life. So I'd like to end here with with two principles that I think we can learn from David's life in these two chapters. And the first one was that even when we don't deserve God's grace and mercy, God will still, even when we're messing up and we know things aren't right with the way our faith is, he still will give comfort and aid to us. And we'll see several different ways that, hap that happens. And the second thing I want to look at is that even when we don't deserve mercy and grace, God still is forming our character and is instructing us in his ways so that we can follow him more faithfully. So even when we're not being faithful, he will still take that and use that to mold our character, right? So let's look at the first one. We don't deserve his grace and mercy, and he gives us comfort. And one way he does that is he supplies daily bread, doesn't he? So David has already lied. Despite his lie, what happens? He supplied his need. Didn't God, through that priest, giving him that bread? And Jesus talked about that in Matthew 12. He said, hey, that's what happened. That is God's mercy coming through because technically, according to the law, that bread that was eaten was only for the priest and their family. It had been taken away from the holy place, but they were the only ones technically that were allowed to eat it. But what's the deal? Jesus is telling us what? That law was not given to be some rigid 
straitjacket to make our lives miserable, was it? It was given for our benefit. So he talks about the Sabbath and why they, they want him to keep the Sabbath. That's because God knows they, we need rest and we need to worship him. So there's the letter of the law and the spirit of the law. And here's the thing. God delights in what? He delights in repentance and mercy. And David is getting both here, repentance and mercy. But some people, they, they delight in judgment, and that's not the heart of our Lord. It's really not. So even in chastisement, I'm saying what we see here is God still comforts and supplies David's needs. And that's the way he does. So once again, if you leave something here, if you could turn over to Jeremiah, and this is just a principle in the Bible, Jeremiah 29. So, hey, you're getting chastised, you know, you're, you know, and you better be chastised at times or something's not right. That's what the New Testament teaches, I believe, in Hebrews still. You're illegitimate that all of God's children receive correction for our good, it says. So that's kind of the principle we see here is, but even in that chastisement, it's not like God locks you in the room, doesn't give you anything to eat, you know, puts you in a, a cellar and puts a stone on top of it to where you can't eat, you can't see the sun, you can't sleep, you can't talk to anybody. That's not God. He'll give you a spanking, it'll hurt, but he lets you go on living. And that's what we see here in Jeremiah 29, starting in verse 4. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, unto all that were carried away captives, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem unto Babylon. So they are in captivity. God's hand of chastisement is on them. But look what he says, verse 5. Don't stop, don't lay down and die. He says, build ye houses and dwell in them, and plant gardens and eat the fruit of them. Take ye wives, and beget sons and daughters, and take wives for your sons, and give your daughters to husbands, that they may bear sons and daughters, that you may be increased there and not diminish. And seek the peace of the city, whither I have caused you to be carried away captives. And pray unto the Lord for it, for it is the peace thereof shall you have peace. In its peace you shall have peace. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, let not your prophets and your diviners that be in the midst of you deceive you, neither hearken to your dreams which you cause to be dreamed. For they prophesy falsely unto you in my name. I have not sent them, saith the Lord. For thus saith the Lord, after 70 years be accomplished, after your chastisement's over, God says what? I will visit you, perform my good word toward you in causing you to return to this place Verse 11, for I know the thoughts that I think towards you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. And then you shall call upon me, and you shall go and pray unto me, and I will hearken unto you. And you shall seek me and find me when you shall search for me with all your heart, and I will be found of you, saith the Lord. I will turn away your captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places whither I have driven you, saith the Lord. And I will bring you again into the place whence I caused you to be carried away captive. So that's the way God is. You're under chastisement. Don't give up. Don't lay down and die. He's saying, go on. Live your life because I will bring you back to an expected end. My thoughts towards you, says the Lord, are peace. So chastisement is just for our good to correct us. 
to keep us from being judged with the rest of the world. And we have something in our life that we need to have a holy life brought out or a more faithful life brought out. So that's God's intentions. And that's what we see here. He, he supplied his daily bread. He's not going to kill David because he told a lie and he's afraid. He's like, oh, I'll give him something. He needs something to sustain him. That's not the lesson I'm trying to teach him, that I'm trying to just do him in, is what he's saying. And the second thing we see is that God gives him protection. So even though David, he deserved to die at the hands of Achish, what is he doing running to the enemy for aid and comfort? To help him out, he deserved to die. But what happened? God preserved him even though he's seeking help from the wrong source. He's seeking help from the wrong source. And how many times have we done this in how many ways to seek help from the wrong source? And just like David, we're thinking to ourselves, we don't have any other choice. I'm sure that's what David thought. I mean, I don't have any other choice. I've got to go over there. I mean, where can I go? And he thinks he has no other choice to run to Gath. And we do that a lot of times, don't we? We think, we just don't have any other, this is what I got to do. And then you get in that situation and you cry out to God. And sometimes you realize your mistake. And like David, I'm sure David, when he's there and he's seeing what all's happening and they're talking about him, he's thinking to himself, God, I should have just trusted you. But he didn't. But what happens, though? He still, in all of that, what does he discover? That we all know God is what? Merciful to us, isn't he? Even when we don't deserve it, did something maybe we shouldn't have done, he delivers us. That's another one we could have testimony time on. How many times has God delivered us when we know that we didn't deserve it? We weren't really trusting him. We're in somewhere we shouldn't be. We've done something we shouldn't do. We knew better. And we were in a bad, all of a sudden, we look at where we're at, like, how did I get here? I knew better than this. And cry out to God, and he has mercy. We really need to see that, because like I said, God's goal is not to destroy, but to teach. I mean, what do you think that ignorant giraffe is thinking every time he tries to do that? Mom keeps knocking him down. It's like, Mom, where's the love? But she's trying to teach him something. That's the only way she's going to be able to do it. The other thing I want to see here is go back to Samuel, if you're in Jeremiah, which I was, is that God will still, even in the midst, when we're not doing well and don't deserve it, he will still give us guidance. And we see that in verse 5. And where this guy came from, it doesn't tell us. But all of a sudden, here's the prophet Gad with David. So it said 400 people that were disillusioned, discontent, people that just the dregs of society came. So he probably came with one of them. Didn't like the way things were going. In verse 5, it says, The prophet Gad, son of David, abide not in the hold, depart, get thee into the land of Judah. And David departed and came into the forest of Hereth. So God, in his grace, even when David's not doing well, he sends a prophet right there to help him out and tell him where to go. Because that's what God promises. I will instruct thee and teach thee in the way which you shall go. I will guide thee with mine eye. So I would say as Christians, how many times, even though we've made mistakes, made the wrong decisions, our, our decisions that we made have left us somewhere that we know we shouldn't be, and then we're looking at things thinking, here I am, I know this isn't right, uh, I want to serve you, Lord, what do I do now? And God doesn't just say, look, buddy, you are on your own. You're out there doing the wrong thing, you're, you're stuck now in a cave somewhere, you're in this trial, and... Things aren't going right. You're in the wrong situation with the wrong people. That's just too bad. 
That isn't what he does, does he? He sends that prophet there and tells him, you need to get out of here. <laughs> you need to go somewhere else. So he'll do that for us if we look to him. Even if we've got, if we're the ones that were at fault that got us in a bad situation. Ask, what do I do now? He'll tell us. Last thing as far as on that point, on this point I want to say is he sends him friends. And so there, all these people, everyone, verse 2, chapter 22, two, everyone that was in distress, everyone that's in debt, everyone that is discontented, they gather himself unto him, and he became a captain over them. And so these men, I guarantee you, they were probably not the friends that David would have chosen. But these are the ones that in different accounts you read about. These are the mighty men of valor, and here's what they did. And these men were heroic in the faith. They were righteous people, and David took them under his wing like the Lord Jesus Christ does with us, and he trained them in warfare. And, buddy, he's the one that could train them in warfare, couldn't he? And he did, and brought them all together. So he took what God gave him, the dregs of society, and formed it into a great fighting force. Because David went out, and once he became king, he conquered. There was nobody messed with him, right? Like I said, it's like what Jesus does with his disciples. You know, I don't know how many of you are aware of the Brooklyn Tabernacle, but, I mean, I see that as being a good illustration of what's happened there. That man's gone into the heart of Brooklyn, and the people that come to his church, he even said, here's this man, he's been sleeping uh, in the streets, he stinks, he's got liquor, he's all oily, and he's wanting me to come up and hug him and pray for him. He's like, and the pastor's thinking, I want nothing to do with this guy. He's, I can smell him 10 feet away. But yet that, who, that is who God is bringing in to that church there. And that pastor in leading them in prayer is molding these people, ex-prostitutes, people on AIDS, drug addicts, bank thieves, just whatever. They're the dregs of that society. No one he would have picked to be pastor over, but he's taken those people and God, through the preaching, has molded them into that is a church of prayer. They're prayer warriors, like David had his warriors. And I think sometimes, you know, we say it, it really is true. I mean, I don't, know, I don't know everybody here, but I think if a lot of you knew me and Greg back in our day, you'd be like, you guys, I don't want to be around you guys. Nothing but trouble. That's what me and Greg were laughing at. That's what people said. You stay away from those two, they'll get you in trouble. So we got people here that probably wouldn't fellowship. But I'm saying by God's grace and the Holy Spirit, he can fold, mold this church into what? a spiritual, lethal fighting machine, seriously, for his kingdom in this community and, and the mission things that go out. If we're all pulling for each other, there is no reason it can't be that way. So God brought even in his trouble, he brings in friends, people that can support him. And don't we have that? We're in trouble, we got friends? I think we do. I mean, we should. I really do think people here are really good about praying for each other. When someone's going through a bad time in a trial, no matter what that is. And that's the way we should be. So the second thing I want to talk about is that even when, second principle I'm seeing here, even when we don't deserve it, God is still at work molding our characters. So David, he's making a lot of mistakes here, isn't he? As we're seeing as a young man, he comes in, he's living in the fear of men that results in lying. And by lying, he causes the death of 85 priests in a whole city. That's what his lie calls. 
and he flees to the enemy of God for help, and what happens? It all backfires on him. I mean, you'd be like, man, what do I need you for if you're going to act like that? How many times do we look at people and say that? But what caused his failures? The number one, God's in control of everything that's going on here. David didn't do anything wrong that he ends up fleeing from Saul, did he? He hadn't done a thing wrong to get himself in that position. And God had knocked out all his props from under him. That's part of the thing that had got him in this position. And he lost his government protection. He didn't have his church, his family, his friends. And he is a desperate, confused young man that's going through the school of hard knocks. At this point, he is. So he was sinning. He, he got involved in sin through his doubt and unbelief. But God never left him, did he? Because God's purpose through all of that, he's got his hand on everything that's going on there. His purpose is what? Is to teach David. To teach and to make him and mold him into a man after his own heart. So David, what though? We need to still make sure we say this. David still has to what? Repent. He still has to suffer the consequences. He still has to know, hey... One, one son escaped out of those priests, Abiathar, and comes to him, and he's told what happened. And he has to live with the fact that his lie caused all those men to be butchered. He has to live with that. There's consequences to it. He has to repent, live with the consequences, and he still has to exercise faith, doesn't he? Because God doesn't allow us to just be the way we are. We cannot just remain in sin. But when he exposes our weaknesses, that's our point he wants us to deal with them, right, and get them right, and then he can bless us. But the ultimate lesson that he is trying to teach David through all of this is what he's trying to teach all of us through all of the trials we go through, whether we succeed or whether we fail, is what? He wants us to learn to trust him and him alone. That's what he wants to teach us. That's the way he works. So what did he do? That's the way he works. He takes Moses. He's 40 years, isn't he? He's going to be the leader. They know it. But where does he? That doesn't start delivering the people right away. He is 40 years in that wilderness because there's some things that he has to learn, and it's a slow process. It takes time. Paul's on the backside of Arabia. And what about this one? We're talking about a schemer and a liar. What about Jacob. Fourteen years old Jacob had to serve Laban because what has God got to work out of that man? All his scheming and lying because that's what got him in that situation, didn't it? But he's the one that God's grace is going to turn into a man after his own heart, Jacob. So here you are. You're here with all your props knocked out from under you this night. And maybe you've made mistakes and maybe you've sinned and you're paying the consequences like David. I don't know. People have been hurt by the sin that you've done, maybe damaged forever. My question would be then, does that mean, obviously, should you lay down and quit? He would say, well, obviously not. But to end here, let's turn to Psalm 142. Here's David's answer to all this. Psalm 142, this is another psalm. This, he wrote this when he was in the cave. Make this our prayer. Psalm 142, David says, verse 1, I cried unto the Lord with my voice. With my voice unto the Lord did I make my supplication, and I poured out my complaint before him. 
I showed before him my trouble. Nothing wrong with that. And when my spirit was overwhelmed within me, then thou knewest my path, and the way wherein I walked have they privily laid a snare for me. He's an overwhelmed young man. He's saying, Lord, you see my trouble. I'm laying it out before you. Verse 4, I looked on my right hand, and behold, there was no man that would know me. Refuge failed me. No man cared for my soul. Have you ever felt like that? Verse 5, and it's, here's what David did. He said, I cried unto thee, O Lord. I said, thou art my refuge and my portion in the land of the living. Attend unto my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are stronger than I. Bring my soul out of prison, that I may praise thy name. The righteous shall compass me about. And here's what he says at the end. Good confession of faith, for you shall deal bountifully with me. So do you feel like your life tonight is right in the midst of that wilderness, like you're just parked maybe right in that cave with David, and maybe even because of your sin? And I'm saying, hey, sometimes God leads us into desperate, confusing situations. We're like, how did we get here? This wasn't my plan. And we don't seem to be too, doing too good spiritually even at times, right? And fail. That's what was happening to David. And what does he do? He takes those situations, and if we'll allow him to, he'll teach us to trust him fully. You keep going through Samuel, David failed many times. Many times he really did fail. But listen, my point tonight is we can't let that make it seem like we still can't be a man after God's own heart or God's done with us or that's somehow not part of his plan because a lot of time character is molded through failures. Not always successes, is it? So how about Peter denying the Lord? I think God used that to mold that man's character and that was a failure, wasn't it? But what did he say? You'll be able to come back after going through all that, Peter, miserably denying me, having me look you right in the eye after you've done that, weeping and crying. But he says, you'll be able to come back through all that. What did he also say? I'm praying for you. That's what got him through all that. He says, you'll be able to come back and use that experience, that failure to do what? Strengthen your brethren. Like David. What kind of a leader would he have been after all these experiences he's had? Or what about the man with that epileptic son? He comes to Jesus, and if, if you can do anything, and Jesus looks at him, and he's like, if I can do anything, what's the matter with you? He says, if you can believe, all things are possible. He's a failure, but he doesn't end up to be a failure, right? Because he had to find some kind of faith, because that's the only way Jesus could have healed that boy. And how many times? So I have been there. We've all been there. You are crying out, God, help me. This child of mine is... Five days hasn't eaten or drinking water. And it's seeing the rib cage through here. I'm not liking this at all. God, please help mine unbelief. Have you been there? I've been there. I need your help, God. And that's what he does, doesn't he? He's knocking your props out. Or the men, Jeff, Jeff been preaching about those guys in the boat. I mean, they are afraid. And Jesus didn't say, man, it's all over with you guys. I mean, I am not going to be going around the Sea of Galilee with a bunch of people. As soon as they get in the ship, they're nervous and shaken, right? Because you're going to knock me out of this boat. He didn't say that, did he? Now, he rebuked them. Where is your faith? Right? 
But it's a teaching lesson, isn't it? It's a character building. That's what happens. We get in those circumstances. We cry out for fear. But what are we learning? What should they have learned? They just need to look to the Lord Jesus Christ. He will help us out. So he's trying to teach us about faith. And just remember the giraffe. Failure produces character. Because you may get knocked down and knocked down again and knocked down again, but you will eventually stand up. And you'll be so happy you're standing up and God will knock you right over like that mother giraffe. <laughs> what in the world? I just had a good testimony. Well, yeah, you're getting proud. Bam! So here, learn another lesson. <laughs> That's the way the Lord works. So you're in a trial. You don't think you've done good? Listen, lift up your head and see what God is doing for you through that trial. He's provided daily bread. He's protected you, hasn't he? Given you guidance. We got a room full of friends right here, right? And most of all that, through that, even if it's a failure, he's teaching you to trust him fully and developing a godly character so that we can all say that we are men and women after God's own heart. Amen? Amen. It's not just for David. That can be for all of us. Amen. Well, let's pray. Father, we just thank you, Lord, for the work you did in David and writing that so that we can see and learn from it. And we just thank you, Lord, for your marvelous grace in our lives that even when we've done what wasn't right, we've given into fear, we, we've uh, not been faithful to you, Lord, but you still have remained faithful to us and that you deal with us and set us back on our feet, Lord. And you'll give us guidance and provide our needs through all that even when we don't deserve it. And we just thank you that you're that kind of God. And that you'll do that kind of work in us, that work that you began in us. And I just thank you for that. I just thank you for your word in Samuel to us tonight. And I just ask that you'll use that to speak to all of our hearts this week and in the future. And if we get in trials to remember these things, that you're not out to destroy us, but you're just out to mold our character. And we thank you that you'll do that and that you're a faithful father that loves us. And I just pray all that in Jesus' name. Amen.